that you've recognized that sin is in the news again, <laughs> which is not news. Sin is always in the news. It's the language describing sin and the definitions of sin that change. In our day, most people don't use the word sin since they have a faint memory that the word is somehow related to God, and we don't want to go there. In my youth, we were told to cast off the old Christian moralism of sin and righteousness, which society only used to restrain people from their freedom and their rights to fulfill their desires. And today, we live in the wreckage of that project. Sexual freedom, we now learn, became the pretense for oppression. It also became the pretense for the deaths of children unborn, tens of millions of them. Right now, we're being told about the sin of racism. And racism, we're told, is a subset of sins against all oppressed peoples, those who identify themselves as sexual minorities, or women, or people of color, or immigrants. Now, I'm not going to comment on any of this today, and I do want to say that certainly blacks and homosexuals and women and immigrants have been treated unjustly, and their oppressors have tried to justify their oppression, and that should stop. Uh, it's not hard to think of examples of any of this, but the question that arises as we read our text today is the question of sin and righteousness. Every generation of human beings must face this question because even if we deny the existence of God, still we're made in his image and so we are haunted by the question. Every human being faces this question. Am I living a good life? And if I find that I'm wrong, can I be made right? If you reject the truth of our text today, you still got to deal with sin. You got to deal with sin in yourself. You got to deal with sin in the people who are around you and the society that you live in. Every generation thus seeks to find a way to justify itself morally. And we do this either by creating a legal code that is easy to keep or by blaming our failings on other people. So the question becomes, where do you draw the line? How do you draw the dividing line between sin and righteousness? Between men and women? Is that where you draw it? Or between gays and straights? Is that where you draw it? Or between conservatives and progressives? Or between racists and anti-racists? Our text answers this question, and it cuts through all the noise of our day. It is such a gift to know Jesus Christ and his words, because suddenly when he speaks, clarity comes. It not only allows us to see sin and righteousness, it gives us a way to become righteous, a way that this world could never invent. So let us read 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. These are God's words. This is the message we have heard from him 
and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, we pray for understanding, we pray for clarity, we pray that you would adjust our wrong thinking, you would confirm our right thinking, and the result of it all would be that we would walk in the light, even as you are in the light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 5, God defines righteousness and sin. This is the message we, this would be the apostles, have heard from him, that would be Jesus, and proclaim to you, this is the message, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Remember what Jesus said when he was in the temple courts? I am the light of the world. Light allows you to see. In the context of our passage today, this light is God. God, as light, allows you to see what is sin and what is righteousness, here described as darkness. God is light. There is no deception in God. There is no hypocrisy in God. In the words of James, God is the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or change or shadow due to change. He does what he says. He keeps his own law. He is light. In the brightness of his light, we can see the reality of a thing. Psalm 36, the psalmist declares, in your light, we see light. It's an amazing text. The lamp next to my bed has a 25-watt bulb. And it's there intentionally so that the effects of bright light right before we go to sleep will not keep us awake. If I look in the mirror above my dresser with only this dim light on my face, my face looks amazingly smooth and 
clear. If I walk 10 feet into the bathroom, though, and turn on the six bright bulbs that are over the sink, and then look in the mirror, I suddenly see an old man with wrinkled and mottled skin. <laughs> in the same way, when I look into the mirror of illuminated by God's light, it, it's not pretty. Light reveals. It exposes darkness. There are no blemishes in God. He is light, and His illumination reveals nothing of darkness in Himself. John underlines it in verse 5. He says, no darkness, and then he adds two words, at all. What's significant about this text is that it doesn't define sin as a list of rules. It doesn't make sin abstract. Sin is not defined by principles. God is light. God is righteous. Light and righteousness define the same God in the same way. He is measured by the light of his own person, and we are measured by the light of his person. In the light of Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world, he reveals reality. We see things as they truly are in his light. We have light to see everything else. And we see ourselves in this light. So when we consider our righteousness, the measurement is not up against, say, the Ten Commandments. The measurement by which we compare ourselves is the very nature of God. So God in his person, God who he is, defines righteousness and sin. Number two, to have fellowship with God, you must agree with him about what sin is. So in verses 6 through 10 in chapter 1, we get a glimpse into what the church was dealing with. And, and uh, as you'll recall from last week, there was a group that separated themselves out from the church, but were still having influence on the church. And now we are introduced to some things they believe. In verses 6 through 10, we see three false beliefs about sin, especially in relation to God. In verse 6, we have a claim to fellowship with God while walking in darkness. In verse 8, we have a claim we have no sin. And in verse 10, a claim we have not sinned. Each falsehood, then, is countered by the truth. So in verse 6, the false assertion is that a person can be right with God and participate in the life of God, but at the same time walk in darkness. Later, we're going to learn in the book that this group claimed that they had an anointing from God that permitted all this. It gave them special access to God. Sin was not relevant to that. In the context of this passage, we have a person who lives his life practicing sins, not allowing the light of God to reveal them and drive them out. He doesn't practice the truth. In the Bible, truth is not some mental conception. Truth is the way you act and live. It's your thoughts and deeds all together. The counter in verse 7 to this is to allow the light of God to illumine the path of our life so we can see where he leads. Verse 7, 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So as we walk in the light, as we allow this light to show us who God is, show us what the world is, show us who we are, it opens the door for us to have fellowship with one another. We can have fellowship with other people who walk in the light. And that was something that those who had left the church had lost. The other thing it opens us to, you see, you know, you, you see that skin in that bright light in the mirror, and it opens you to receiving a transformation from God. Here, the cleansing blood of Jesus. So we confess our sins to him, and he cleanses us from our sins. So when we approach God, we are not approaching him stained and dirty by sin. Real fellowship can only happen in a church where grace reigns. Let me say that again. Real fellowship can only happen in a church where grace reigns. If we evaluate ourselves and we evaluate others in the church according to how we keep a moral code, we, sing, we, we quickly realize we got stuff to hide and we got to play the part even though we're, no, we're not the part. And therefore, we can't allow the light of God to forgive us and open us up to other people. We also evaluate other people in a way that, that doesn't meet our moral code, and so we can feel superior to them even while we're hiding our own sins. And you have no fellowship in a context like that. There can't be that oneness that delights in the gospel of God. Church, we got nothing to prove. We got nothing to prove in our own righteousness, but what we can prove is that Jesus is righteous as we walk in the light and have fellowship with one another. That's where real fellowship begins, in the light of Jesus. If you're afraid to allow others to know you, it may be that you are not living in the good of God's light and grace. The second thing the secessionists claimed was that they have no sin. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us. I think New Testament scholar Colin Cruz gets the verse right when he says that the secessionists believed that they were not guilty of committing sins, by which they probably meant they had not sinned since they came to know God and experienced the anointing. So we don't sin. Yeah, we're we're. We're Christians. We receive God's anointing. This kind of people don't sin. You might think that that's a really strange thing, but there are strands of Wesleyanism and of some reform circles that claim that with justification comes no sin. Now, they, different groups get at that in different ways, but there becomes this denial that I continue to sin, that I should examine myself, that I should allow the light of God's word, the light of God's presence to help me to see my sin so I can grow in righteousness and grow in fellowship with God and with others. John calls this self 
deception. John says they have talked themselves into a falsehood. And so he asserts in verse 9 that we do continue to sin, and when we recognize our sin, we must confess it to God, whom we can count on not only to forgive us, but to remove its stain from us, so that our fellowship with God and with one another can continue. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the third claim that the secessionists made in verse 10 seems to be a repetition of verse 8. If we say we have not sinned. But there's a difference in the way he puts it. The tense refers more to their condition as sinless rather than the particular acts of sin. So in the first case, they're saying, I I don't do sins anymore. I'm a Christian. In the second, they say, I am in a condition of sinlessness. John is blunt in his response. Such a position makes God a liar and reveals that his word is not in us. So the question is, and always has been, what is sin and who is the sinner? Are there people who somehow achieve the status of being sinless? In the politics of our day, we have classes of people who are defined as being guilty of sin that they may not even be aware of. And we have classes of people who cannot sin because of the history of oppression in our country. And there are people making broad judgments about how to divide these lines. Listen, we came into the pandemic and we've come into uh, upheaval in our cities and riots. All the issues driving this stuff are theological. (laughs) They're not just a social problem, not just a political problem we got a theological problem. And I want to warn you against entering into conversations that fail to recognize that sin is universal. So you enter into these conversations, they need to end in a theological reality that God is light. I cannot think of a better way to illustrate my point than to tell a story about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn was born in Russia in 1918, so he was a child of the revolution. He grew up a communist and became a captain in the Soviet army in World War II. During the war, he exchanged private letters with a boyhood friend who was also at the front in another battalion. In their letters, they complained about the Soviet government and made jokes about the Soviet government's leader, Joseph Stalin. For this, Solzhenitsyn was sentenced to eight years in prison. He ended up in a huge, hard labor camp seven years into his sentence. And while there, he became sick and was diagnosed with stomach cancer And so in the crude camp hospital, he had a tumor removed. On the night of his surgery, after his surgery, as he's recovering, a doctor who was not treating him, who wasn't the surgeon, came in and sat with him for most of the night. And he told Solzhenitsyn how he had converted to Christianity. 
He was a Jew. Solzhenitsyn was astonished by the man's story and the fervency of his faith. It had a great effect on him. And as he drifted off to sleep, he awoke in the morning to yelling and commotion in the hallway as orderlies were carrying the body of this doctor into the operating room. Someone had come and smashed the doctor's head eight times with a hammer, and he died on the operating table. This was a shocking experience to Solzhenitsyn, and it caused him to reevaluate his life. And so after telling this story, here's how he concludes the tale of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ from this Jewish convert to Christianity. It was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience. So he's saying, here's what I learned. How a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and therefore I was cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was convinced, and all the power he gained as he went through his academic career and then became a captain in the army. He says, in the surfeit of power, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through all human hearts. Right through. The line separating good and evil passes right through all human hearts. You may be wondering how the divisions in our nation, which seem to grow every day, how could these divisions ever heal? And I want to tell you where the healing must begin. Where the healing can only begin, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Before I can see your sins, before I can criticize you, before I can judge and condemn you, I must see myself. That's what happened to Solzhenitsyn. In 2012, following the horrible killing of Trayvon Martin by a security guard named George Zimmerman, President Obama provided what I considered and still consider a very helpful comment that humanized the tragedy. Here's what he said. Trayvon Martin could have been me 35 years ago. It took it out of the abstract and the political and the legal and brought it into, I could have been that 17-year-old kid. 
Now, in light of this passage, the president could have taken that thought a step further. And I'm not suggesting that he should have. I'm just illustrating a point here, okay? In the light of God, in, a, in the light of the God, the God in the light of his truth, in the light of his son searching your own conscience as it did in prison to Solzhenitsyn, in different circumstances, the president could have been George Zimmerman as well. This is what God's light does. You see yourself, and you start to see that your sins, you can see them in everybody else. The line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. Now, apart from Jesus, this is going to leave you hopeless. And our text doesn't allow for that. So number three... Point number three is to have fellowship with God. You may ask him and trust him to forgive your sins. Chapter two, verse one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. John is calling them to see their sin in the light of the person of God. And he's calling them to avoid sinning. But he also realizes that when we become aware that we have sinned, we are not left spiritually destitute and under God's judgment. Jesus approaches the Father with our remedy. He has already propitiated us. That's a rare word in the Bible. An advocate is someone who comes alongside of you to offer help in a difficult situation. Here, the help is that Jesus can approach God the Father who must punish your sin and my sin. And Jesus pleads his own death as atonement for what you and I have done. Propitiate means to resolve wrath. It means to remove wrath. It means to take away wrath, justified wrath, because someone has been offended. And when God is offended, he is wrathful. But Jesus comes and says, I'm their advocate. I have removed this wrath. They can come into fellowship with you. The remedy to your guilt is not to deny that you sin or that your status before God makes you incapable of sitting, sinning. It's not putting yourself in a class that's sinless compared to all those other bad people. The remedy is to confess your sin to God and trust that Jesus will, as your advocate, make atonement for your sin through his death on your behalf. And then finally, the second half of verse 2, God's forgiveness is available to everyone. Look at the middle of verse 2. Well, read the whole thing. He's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, first thing you might say is, oh, does that mean John thinks everybody is saved? That this death applies to everyone, no matter what? Well, chapter 3 makes it clear that that's not how he's thinking. What he's saying is that there is no class 
or category of human being who is excluded from the offer of forgiveness and propitiation of sins. Anyone who approaches Jesus Christ, regardless of race, regardless of class, regardless of ethnicity or political party or education or wealth, all will be received when we approach the Father with our advocate, Jesus Christ. The world has its own definitions of sin. The world knows how to, cry, how to recognize sins and how to cry out, Injustice! The governors of this world are commanded by God to recognize evil and execute justice. The categories are all there, but the lines are not clear and are often drawn in the wrong places. So the relevance of this text for us today is who can heal a divided people? Who can bring the secessionists back into the church? Are we better than they are? That was the question before these people. Or they were saying, we're better than you. We don't sin. Who is going to heal a divided people? Who is going to heal a divided United States of America? Who can bring sinful people to God and obtain forgiveness for them and then bring people together in fellowship from every nation, tongue, and tribe? Only the God of light. Only the God who dwells in perfect righteousness and perfectly exposes sin. Only the Son of God who is light, the light of the world, can make atonement for sin. I would urge you in the current political upheaval in our society not to fall for the offer of political solutions. There are, some politics are better than others, some are more just than others, but they cannot heal, and they will not resolve anything. This is the message we have for the world. This is the message that we are desperate to hear. Jesus Christ is the light the only light by which this world can see and by this, which this world can be healed. Let us bring that message, that message that the apostles heard from Jesus and proclaimed to us, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we may have fellowship with one another. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus, and in Jesus we would see you, and we would not avoid your light, but embrace your light. And allow your light, the person of yourself, to evaluate us that we might experience the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. 
Lord, we pray that we would be true to this gospel message and we would not confuse it with the temporary and short-falling political answers that our society offers. Jesus, you're the king. Jesus, you're the one who has the solution. Jesus, you're the one who sees. And we're sticking with you. Amen. Amen.